day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, January 31st, 2014. This week, episode 313 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio and at the controls is Jessica Lawson. Hello, everyone. Hello, Jessica. And the Z-Man is traveling today, so he will not be joining us. And I'm not sure if Dr. Wow is going to make it in today or not. He had a, an appointment. But today's segments include an interview with Ula Havernan Shaughnessy. Looking forward to talking to Dr. Shaughnessy about some, some new information that's come out from a study she did, uh, her and her colleagues did, on ATP use and, and clean uh, in schools, and then uh, the ISSA, that's the International Sanitary, uh, I'll get the, S, the, the acronyms together on that one, and Sanitary Supply Association, they uh, put together a standard on that used a lot of that research information. Of course, we be, before we start, let's thank our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, visit them at John Don. J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. You can also, of course, download the shows, the previous shows from our website at iaqradio.com, and you can also get the shows from iTunes. Um, also, if you want to download shows, you can follow the GoToShow link at the top of our website. We also have continuing education credits available. Email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out of quiz. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website, for the most current dates for the training you trust at, iaqtraining.com. Joe forgot to grab the uh, trivia question today, so we're going to do that at, at halftime, Andy. Hang in there. I'll, I'll do the trivia question at halftime, and uh, we'll get that. Cliff did send it to me, but I messed up. So let's start our intro music for Dr. Shaughnessy. Santa Claus, we're educated and obey the laws. Neutrality, yes, we insist. We fought the communists. The Lennon's geeks, like Phil and Best, are songs the angriest. We your Nokia's and angry birds. We put the double vowel in all our words. It's not as cold as you might read. Just don't get calling sweet. Oh, Cliff comes up with some good stuff. Let's get Dr. Shaughnessy on the line. Hello. Whoop. You got on muter. There we go. Good morning, Dr. Shaughnessy. Do we have you on the line? Yes, hi. I'm Welcome. here. Welcome. I don't know if you could make out. Went, 
live the music doesn't sound as good as it does on the recording so hopefully you were able to make it out pretty well but uh welcome to the show it's great to have you um you've done a lot of research on you know indoor air quality health uh, dampness uh, remediation effectiveness etc today we were hoping to focus on some of your more recent uh, research that led to this issa standard on cleanliness essentially for schools k-12 through schools um, the name of it was the, let's see here, a ATP, that's adenosine tri, uh, tri, adenosine triphosphate phosphate, you'll get that for me, uh, tradenosine, but anyway, as a marker for surface contamination in schools and a potential approach to the measurement of cleaning effectiveness. That was approach was adopted by the ISSA, as I mentioned. What is adenosine triphosphate? I think that's the right pronunciation. Yes, and since I'm from Finland, I wouldn't even try to pronounce that, but we talk about ATP for short. And uh, first of all, uh, I must say that my background is mainly from building sciences and environmental health, so I'm therefore not the best person to respond to very detailed questions related to microbiology, but uh, in this study and some other studies I have participated in, ATP has been used as an indicator of biological contamination on surfaces. So it somehow relates to the amount of uh, material of biological origin, uh, cells such as bacteria. So in a way, it, it is a measure of cleanliness of surfaces. You know, I, I forgot to mention in, in your introduction, your, your doctorate is in, is in industrial engineering and, and you do building science research. I'm, I'm curious, uh, in Finland, is is that a pretty common line of work for females to get into? No, not at all. I would say we had about 20% female in our um, university studying building sciences and uh, and that's about it. So I think it's a relatively universal thing that females don't study engineering that much, but it's improving though. It was in structural engineering. What what made you get involved in structural engineering? Well, I think probably the fact that my father was a civil engineer, and I always lived, screwed up in that uh, kind of uh, close to construction sites, and so and so that was kind of familiar to me, and I I got interested in building and buildings and structures and it's really relatively strong in math so that seemed natural to me to pursue that direction and then you you do a lot of research and you're you're part of the the research group there in finland and I'm, i'm curious what what led to your interest in research well i first got interested in this um healthy building topics i started studying uh, i took a minor in environmental health as i was in college and and then that led me to look for a job that i could use that kind of combination with building sciences and environmental health and i found um, a position at the national institute for health and welfare in finland that um, allowed me to do that so uh then i just drifted research somehow. And you continue to do work with the university there and also, as I understand it, you're a visiting professor at the University of Tulsa. Yes, I have been doing this 
kind of uh, commuting back and forth for about 10 years now. And are the two groups working together on some of these projects? Um, not really, because the work I do in Finland, we really focus on um, housing and health buildings topic in Finland and other European countries. So we also collect data and, uh, and analyze and publish data from uh, these field studies. But, and then the same way in the U.S., uh, we, uh, I participate in project, uh, projects at the University of Tulsa where we also collect data and, and so on. It's, so not, not directly, we don't collaborate other than changing information. And uh, of course, uh, that's always good. I see. Well, you know, I'm I'm curious about the perception, and I, I'll get into the ATP study and and how that's been used in a standard here in the in the U.S. in a moment. But I think a lot of our listeners will be curious about uh, a little bit about your background and thoughts on on working in the two, you know, both in Europe and over here in the states. And there's a perception, at least within a big part of our indoor air quality industry here, that that the Europeans and in particular the, the Scandinavian area of Europe is doing more research or is further ahead on indoor air quality issues in some ways than here in the States. Could you comment on that? Well, I think so. In the past 20 years or so, Scandinavian countries have been really active, especially related to dampness and mold issues. And I think part of it may be because our buildings are built very energy efficient and airtight and that uh, kind of highlights the importance of good uh, indoor air quality and need for sufficient ventilation and moisture control and so on. Um, So the dampness and mold issues, there has been a lot of focus there, but I wouldn't say it's, uh, it's, it, it also has been on focus here in the U.S. and uh, also then other issues related to ventilation in schools, for example, that has been more active here in the U.S. and this new area um, on cleanliness in schools has really started from here and it hasn't really um, been started in Europe to that extent, at least to my knowledge so far. So, Well, I'm wondering if you could comment on the differences in the construction you're you're dealing a lot with residential construction in finland and you're looking at health and dampness and in finland and then then you come here and you're in tulsa which is you know kind of a i don't know if that would be a hot humid or a mixed humid climate i guess it would be like a hot humid climate um what kind of major differences do you see in the construction between the two areas? Yes, it's definitely driven by the climate. So in Finland, we have a very cold climate, and uh, as a response to that, the buildings are really uh, built energy efficient and has a lot of uh, um, insulation. Uh, also, the EU directives nowadays, they are tightening continuously and that has led to the situation where the new buildings uh, I think the um, target is by 2016 all buildings new buildings should be built near zero energy and in Finland it means that for example the uh, 
thickness of insulation in walls can be closer to half a meter. Okay. Now, and, and whereas here you probably use like what four inches of insulation in walls. Yeah, maybe That's six in some situations. Yeah. yeah. Now, is this um, is is the housing stock? Do you use more like concrete and uh, um, type construction in the housing stock in Finland, or is it you know two by sixes and wood construction like we see here? Well, Finland traditionally we have a lot of uh, forest and trees, and so wood and constructions uh, in in single family houses and and homes are pretty common, but then we also, a large part of population lives in apartment buildings, and there we have concrete and these type of... Do you have, are you familiar with the passive house design? Um, Yes, well, we, our studies, we are, we have really started to look into the effect of improving energy efficiency in buildings. Uh, Maybe four or five years ago, we have an ongoing study on that, but it is focused on existing buildings. So uh, what happens when we improve those and what, how that, does that affect the indoor environmental quality and health? But we haven't done much research on the newer buildings and the passive houses represent the newer uh, types of buildings. So uh, I, I know a little bit about that, but I don't have any research ongoing on those yet but I'm hoping that in the future we will because it's a very important area of course you know we need to learn from each other and I'm just curious with your background in in studying the effects of tightening up and adding insulation what's the one big takeaway that you could tell us here with respect to what mistake not to make as we do the same thing. I mean, we're in the middle of doing the same thing. We're tightening up homes. We're adding more insulation. What's the one big takeaway mistake that you might help us avoid? Well, I think the big mistake would be not to uh, adjust the ventilation to, uh, to be sufficient for the new or renewed uh, construction or renovated construction but I wouldn't also want to sound too negative about that because uh, I really think that in improving energy efficiency and, and and renovating the buildings to become more airtight is also a good opportunity to improve indoor air quality and, and related issues so I think a lot of positive can come out of it as well so, so if if only these uh, renovations are designed well and uh, also the construction work is, is of good quality, I would expect mainly positive effects. And I would like to encourage everyone to think about ways to improve energy efficiency in buildings. Uh, that's that's obvi- that's the great uh, sentiment for our listeners. Now, I'm just, I don't know, maybe you don't, get into this kind of detail I'd like to ask about real quick on the ventilation issue. Are, are you seeing homes in Finland with just one source of return on the ventilation or multiple sources of return air? Uh, 
Um, they usually multiple sources. Okay, because that's somewhat of a an issue and a problem we're seeing here is that you know with just one source of return air, you don't get that that ventilation evenly distributed throughout the building, and then you start to see problems. But it becomes more difficult in your uh, apartment complexes and, and things of that nature. Yes, that could be. But also the systems are very different in Finland for ventilation because we don't really need air conditioning there. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you don't have any. What's the primary heat source? Is it coal, electric, uh, electric uh, fuel oils? Uh, I would think it's... Um, well, I... Couldn't really tell you right now. Okay, I'm just kind of curious. Well, let's let's move on to um, what I'd like to ask you real quick. You had mentioned some of the current research you've been um, working on, and I wondered if you could fill in listeners on some of the current types of research that you're doing, and uh, maybe just touch on some of the key points. Okay, so I understood you were interested in this cleanliness and ATP. Um, yeah, how did that one come about? Here, here in the U.S. Well, uh, we have been doing research in school buildings. First started uh, studying ventilation in schools about 10 years ago and how that may affect student performance and learning. And then maybe about five years ago, we added this cleanliness uh, aspect to the studies. And uh, like I already mentioned, um, ATP was used as the measure of cleanliness in these studies, and uh, and and. Um, well, I'm just curious with the ATP. What other industries commonly use ATP? I think it has been traditionally used in food industry, and then some other settings that have very high standard for cleanliness, like in healthcare, hospitals, places like that. But then it has being used also in schools in our studies and, and I think in Australia, for example, as well. So uh, the first studies you did, uh, as I understand, were on uh, ventilation in schools and the effects that would have on performance. And can you just kind of summarize how ventilation affected performance in schools? Right. Well, we uh, collected data from about 100 schools and uh, in the two different uh, settings, but then uh, as we combined this data, we were able to define an association between substandard uh, ventilation and uh, students' test scores on the standardized tests that were used in the state where this study took place. So uh, that was the main result result out of that study, that uh, it really, if you have substandard ventilation, which in the U.S. referring to uh, ASHRAE standards, then you can start seeing the association with with, uh, reduced test scores in mathematics and readings and possibly some other subjects as well. What kind of tests were these? Were these just... um like SAT scores for, I don't know if you're familiar with SAT, but it's kind of like the college prep right, scores. Right, those are in high school, but our, our study, we did that in elementary schools, so they have a t- different types of tests used in elementary level, but yes, yeah, similar to that, they take the test every year, spring term, and uh, it's 
statewide test and response to the state curriculum. And, and so we think the measure is really um, reliable in a sense well, yeah, and, compared to what is usually used in in some research studies where the outcomes are not that well standardized, but in this case, uh, they were so. Well, and I think it's also something that should get school administrators' attention because they're being judged more and more by how well students perform on standardized tests. Right, right. I think it should give a lot of um, motivation for decision makers to really think about these things and now, when you say there's an association between ventilation and standardized test scores, is there some percentage or some uh, number that we can apply to that, that that says, you know, if you had good ventilation, the kids should do X percent better, or is that beyond the what you did in the study? Well, in that study, we looked at the level um, test scores, so how many, uh, the percent of students scoring satisfactory, and that percent increased, if I remember correctly, about 2 to 3 percent for each uh, liter per second uh, per person increase in ventilation, so, uh, wow. so per- that could give you... For each liter per second, it went up 2 to 3 percent. Right. Right. That's, that's interesting. And do you know if there was a um, a point of diminishing returns? So you increased the liters per second up to a certain point, and then you started to see that it didn't make as much difference, or is that beyond what we the scope of what we're talking about? Well, we actually couldn't test the higher ventilation rates because we didn't have enough schools that uh, – would have the higher levels of ventilation. So we had to limit the assessment to what was below the ASHRAE standards. Okay. So seven, you... About seven liters per second. So we only had so few schools that would be exceeding that uh, standard that we couldn't um, draw any conclusions based on the higher ventilation rates. And that is something that I think should be further studied because we would like to see that when, when I, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that there would be such limit where, the, where you start seeing less uh, improvement. I see. Now, so this led to um, additional studies, including this cleanliness study. I'm, I'm just curious, how did... Um, were you looking at other variables, I guess, that might affect student performance? And, and I would assume that one of those variables related to indoor air quality would just be the the cleanliness of the buildings. Yes, and one possible mechanism could be that if the cleanliness somehow associated with uh, the health outcomes and absenteeism in the, among the students, then that could also lead to reduced. Uh, performance. So I guess you needed some standardized method for determining what what is clean. Yes, yes, that uh, is needed or was needed. Okay. Still is. And as I understand it, you, the, at least the ISSA standard, the, the clean standard for K through 12, it's done on levels. You first do like a visual assessment and then they do the ATP testing afterwards. Um, is that accurate? Um, yes. Well, um, I don't. I'm not 
uh, that familiar with the standard itself. I know that it is based on the research that we did in some 30 schools. We collected a large data set uh, using the ATP as the marker of cleanliness, and then we established um, uh, distributions and ranges and um, percentiles that you are commonly seeing in school, both before cleaning and after cleaning. Oh, and okay. based on these data, the standard was developed by ASSA. No, what but I, I believe it also includes the visual assessment, but it's just that uh, we believe that uh, we can't always assess the cleanliness based on vis- visual assessment reliably. So ATP would help in that sense that what is not seen still may be there. And um, So let me, let me see if I understand. You were doing ATP testing on many different surfaces within uh, how many schools, I'm just curious, were involved in your research? Initially, we had about um, 30 schools that were involved with this ATP testing. And then later on, we went to um, four other locations around U.S. and representing different geographical areas where uh, we did some further testing and uh, tried to validate the method, so to say that the levels that we found in this one district would also apply, be applicable in other regions as well, which turned out to be the case. So I think the data set that um, we collected was relatively representative. Well, I'd like like to get into more on what data came out of this, but before I do, let me just get a little background. What types of surfaces were you testing with the ATP? So we selected some high-touch point surfaces, so the surfaces that the students would frequently touch, and those included uh, classroom desks cafeteria tables, and then uh, bathroom, sink areas, and also stall doors. And? That's these four different types of surfaces. And these were what they call high-touch surfaces? Yes. And, and we're there not... are others as well, but we just have, have to focus on something to begin with. And uh, in the future studies, hopefully it can be... Uh, Extended, and these are all kind of hard surfaces, right? That uh, not—they're not fabrics or cloth. They're more hard surfaces. You've got, you know, metal, and in the case of desks, a, a real hard plastic area, and and so on. Does ATP work better? That type of testing work better on hard surfaces versus, say, pillows or couch cushions or um, clothing? Yes, I think it really does. It works best on non-porous surfaces, so, and it's easier to take the sample when the surface is... And how big of a sample do you take? Well, it's taken using a standard template that you typically is 5 times 5 inches is what we used in school, so in some cases it can be 10 by 10 inches, so... And did you use just one? I mean, there are there's three different types of ATP, I believe, um, instruments 
three different manufacturers, maybe four if I'm, I'm from, I, I, I might be mistaken on the number, that are referenced in the ISSA standard. Did you use different types of manufacturers' equipment or just one type? Yes, in this study, um, we had to select uh, a limited number, so three different ATP systems were tested, but I believe there actually is about 10 different systems on the market right now. Oh, okay. I, I see. And so how did they compare... Um, was it, were they pretty consistent in their results between the three different types of systems? Well, they all have their own ranges. So one ATP may have a range from 1 to 100, and the second one may be one, from 1 to 10,000, and then the third one is from 1 to millions even. So you really have to have the... ATP specific um, range known before you can start making any any conclusions or anything. And I, but uh, but they all um, did demonstrate um, a log normal distribution and then reduction as um, as comp- after cleaning as compared to before cleaning. So they were consistent in that sense. Okay, so you did before and after cleaning. Right. And actually, I, I did um, make the mistake. The temp- template that we used was a 2 pint by 2 inches and not 5 by 5. Okay, uh, 2 by 2 inch. And it's confused because I'm more used to the European ways, but yeah. Well, that's certainly understandable because I get confused going the other way. When you said a meter and a half or a half a meter, I was trying to do the conversion real quick there, so um, I can understand. Now, what we'd like to do here, um, Dr. Shaughnessy, we're going to stop and and give our halftime, do our halftime where we thank our sponsors, and I'm going to uh, try and locate the uh, trivia question for those that um, are waiting for that. And we'll be back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Ula Havaranen Shaughnessy. Uh, Great stuff on the um, study she did on on cleaning and the use of ATP to determine cleanliness levels in K-12 schools, which was later adapted into uh, a standard through the ISSA. We'll be right back with our guest. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. 
Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Go for it. All right, I'm going to handle the trivia question this week uh, for the Z-Man. You can get your answers, either text them right here online or send them to me this week. I guess that would be joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Hughes is H-U-G-H-E-S. Of course, the trivia question, as always, is sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners. They've been advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out more on their website at www.trsca.org. This week's trivia question is... Why am I just seeing the answer there, Jess? Arguably, the Super Bowl is America's biggest television event where 30-second commercials cost $4 million. The Super Bowl brand is worth $470 million, and the NFL as a whole generates $9 billion per year. What is the tax status of the NFL? I don't think too many people know the answer to that one. I'm sure they'll find it. All right, let's get back to the second half of our interview with Dr. Ula Havaranen Shaughnessy. Dr. Shaughnessy, do we have you back? Yes, I'm here. All right, great. I wanted to go back into the visual assessment for just a moment uh, while you were doing your research. How did you do the visual assessment? Was it just, you know, people walked through, they had a checklist, they said this is dirty, this is clean. Did they have a flashlight they were using to get a closer look, or was it a more cursory kind of uh, look at things? Yes, uh, in this case, as also in other studies, visual assessment, um, we use it to collect relevant background information for research purposes that then will help to interpret the result. For example, in school studies, we we are commonly interested in characterizing the type of and condition of the building structure and um, HVAC systems, thermal conditions, and so on. And also take a note of presence of any dampness and mold, um, different material material used like carpet or hard flooring surfaces and and then also the visual cleanliness part is important especially in these type of studies how did you oh yes it includes the checklists and we have some uh, some items there to take a note to regarding visual cleanliness and uh, degree of clutter and 
that kind of thing. I see. So they did a general observation with the checklist, go through, and, and you included some things about the mechanical system and uh, uh, mold and dampness, I guess, um, indicators of mold and dampness. What did you do when there was carpet throughout a building, or did that not affect what you were doing? Well, in this study, it did not affect because we didn't um, we didn't do any testing on the flooring surfaces. So. Okay. Okay. In other studies, it is very important to to include that. But do you see carpet in schools in Finland? No, it's not used at all there. So that's a definite difference between Finnish schools and the schools in the U.S. Do you know if that's by code or if that's by just you know best practice? Schools know better. Well, I think in Finland, uh, we just stopped using carpet anywhere in, like, 1970s. So it's not used in homes and not in schools. Oh. Um, I think it's just too hard to maintain in in the conditions that we have there. Because of the, the snow and the weather? Or? Yes, yes, probably so, the in the fall and during the springtime, it gets so wet and muddy. And um, okay, I see. So most people use hard surfaces as uh, you know, yeah. tile and ceramic and so on and so forth. Yes, I see. Okay, what about um, we talked about how large of a surface area is? How did you, I, as I recall, in the standard, there were three levels. It was kind of like you know. Um, I want to say dirty, intermediate, and clean. Is that? Did you do that with respect to your visual assessment? It was three levels of cleanliness, or and maybe you could explain a little more about that. Well, we well, I think the standard is based on the research article that we published, and there we um, had the the percentiles and the distributions, and ISSA then decided what uh what they are what three levels they are going to use but we didn't propose the levels for this standard but but um we had presented the distributions and, and percentiles and so forth i'm curious so, when, go ahead, go ahead yeah, uh, I, when you looked at these surfaces that were that were visually dirty what kind of cleaning techniques did they use prior to you testing the surface again? We didn't really um, restrict the cleaning techniques or we didn't, uh, that wasn't, uh, the, that wasn't, there was no control over the cleaning techniques, so the schools would use whatever techniques um, they had been using. I see. So whatever they had used in the past, they go ahead and use again. I, that makes sense. Um, what are the? Were, did you consider using any other um, method for determining the level of cleanliness other than ATP testing? Uh, we had some um, testing regarding bacteria counts in that study. So parallel to ATP, we also took uh, bacterial samples and analyzed those, uh, and they showed similar trends. Uh, and the ATP with respect to before and after cleaning and the, the reduction that uh, we saw after cleaning. And then in some other studies, uh, we have also used uh, what's called 
fluorescent marker that uh, basically measures uh, is the measure of whether a surface has been cleaned or not. Because in some cases, um, uh, it, it's pretty common that surfaces that appear to be clean based on visual assessment are not touched during the cleaning process. So that's an important component of the assessment uh, in the research at the moment as well. I guess the drawback on doing the bacterial sampling was that, you know, you had to take a sample, send it to a laboratory, wait whatever time period before you got your results. Is that accurate to say? Yes, that's that's true. Whereas ATP, it's, um, you can read the result immediately on site. So it is uh, it's a rapid method as compared to traditional microbiological samples. And the fluorescent markers, I assume, they're they're done immediately on site too. Yes, well, there uh, we have used the technique um, uh, where the fluorescent markers are placed um, on the site before cleaning, and then after the cleaning has occurred, somebody goes there and uh, checks whether the marks are still there so okay now i understand okay okay so you were you would go in before the cleaning and then distribute whatever is it like a powder um i'm not actually sure i haven't seen this i i think it's some kind of uh, liquid okay or something okay so they mark the area and then come back and determine with a I guess uh, a UV light or something, whether or not they got that material cleaned up or not. Yes. I and see. And it becomes invisible when it dries, so uh, after it's been... Dis- uh, so that wouldn't be a very practical way of measuring the level of cleanliness. It would just kind of tell you whether or not they cleaned that area. Right. So we are using that to estimate the percent of surfaces that has been cleaned. I see. In combination with, say, ATP, that uh, gives you an idea of how well it was cleaned. Okay. That would be an interesting uh, experiment or research project, and I guess you're doing something like that, so you would do a combination of both, where you you know mark certain areas to get an idea of how well they were cleaned visually using the marker, and then you would verify that or, or do further evaluation with the ATP. Yeah. yeah. And I was curious, you mentioned that the ATP results and the bacterial sample results trended similarly so as the ATP sample results went down the bacteria sample results also went down yes we saw that kind of a trend yes. and you were doing I guess culturable were you doing like a, a swab of some kind with the with the bacteria yes that was a swab as well and then cultivated and analyzed now I guess one of the other concerns or um drawbacks with ATPs. It's just looking for a, a marker, essentially, that's found in living organisms. So I want to clarify with listeners, and if you can help me, it's not going to tell you a whole lot about whether there was lead dust or pesticides or maybe asbestos um, that was on, on the surfaces. No, it does not 
measure those things at all. It's really based on uh, biological, but it, it doesn't matter whether the, say, the bacteria cell was alive or already dead at the time of the sampling. ATP measures both. Guess it's the component of the cell that it, it, it gives an indication of. Whereas the bacterial sampling, of course, it, uh, it measures more the culturable. I'm curious if, if you did any, or, or if you know of anyone who has done any sampling for, say, lead dust or asbestos before and after the same cleaning, and if, if the ATP, I mean, it seems like, on the one hand, it seems like, well, cleaning is cleaning if you're cleaning then the surface should have less lead dust or less asbestos or less pesticide residue. But on the other hand, cleaning techniques for lead dust and asbestos may be slightly different. Are you familiar with any other research, or did your research take into consideration maybe some sampling for other types of contaminants? Uh, Not in this research. We did not, and I don't really know anyone who would have done that kind of thing. Okay. Just curious on that because, um, you know, we've done a lot of asbestos abatement over the years in schools. That's that's another question about Finland. Do you have much, many asbestos-containing materials that are remaining in Finland? Was it used as heavily in Finland as it was in the United States? It has been used a lot in the past. I think they stopped using it uh, officially in 1990s. I'm not wrong. Okay. There still is issues with asbestos and, uh, for example, residential buildings. It's recommended to to investigate all uh, materials that may have asbestos and they condition and make plan for for how to um, to make sure that they are safe and uh, and so on. So. Do you have the same issues with lead paint that we have here in the United States? There's a lot of lead paint that was used in these schools and other buildings over the years. Did you have the same issue in Finland? Well, I don't really think we've had to back that extent because I'm aware of that discussion here and how uh, much of a concern it is still these days, but it's not uh, it's not ongoing discussion in Finland. That's interesting. Now, as going back to the ATP for just a moment, were there any? Is there anything that could cause a false positive with the ATP testing? So, um, if by false positive, um, you mean that uh, the surface was cleared, but we still had a high ATP, I, I think it's possible to that kind of uh, false reading to be caused by either the cleaning technique that was used uh, or the sampling technique. What about um, if they used the cleaning technique, I think I know the answer, but I want to put it out here for listeners, that utilized an antimicrobial as a part of that technique. Um, It sounds to me like it really wouldn't matter with the ATP because it's just testing for, you know, is it there or not? It's not necessarily determining whether it's culturable or viable. 
Right. I don't think that would directly affect the ATP reading. I think there has been some discussion about the possibility of some cleaning agents affecting the ATP um, somehow if the cleaning agent was using biological material or, or something like that. But I do not know more specifically about that. Yeah, they did mention that in the standard. Now that you mention it, they they said that I guess there are some cleaning techniques where they use another, uh, for the lack of a better term, good good enzyme or good bacteria to help clean up some of the bad ones, and and that that could affect the ATP. Yes, that I think so too, and I I'm sure there's a lot of testing going on in this. Um, what about, is there any, I thought maybe I also read somewhere, and you, you alluded to this, that some cleaning products may um, skew the results. Is bleach, do you know, one of those products? I really don't know in detail. Okay, just any thought I'd, you know. products. All right. Um, this, this, like this work, we have aimed to really focus on the, Levels and um, what are common and and um, what should be um, the target levels, so to say, for cleanliness, but not so much on how the school should achieve this. It's really uh, left up to them to decide what what products and cleaning techniques to be used. But this ATP just provides a method for them to check if the the cleaning was effective. Well, you have looked at schools, I assume, you know, in in your home country and, and here in the United States. I wonder if there was any, if you had any general kind of um, observations with respect to some of the things we may maybe could do better in our schools, or are they fairly clean compared to what you've seen in the past? Do they need to work on cleanliness? Um, maybe any other general observations you had? Well, actually, I think in the U.S. you are ahead of this type of research because uh, I have also tried to actively get this type of research done in Finland so we would know what are the levels there and if there is room for improvement. But I guess the general observation would be that uh, in the U.S. um, you have much more um, materials in schools like books and toys and kind of clutter if you say it may make it more difficult to clean because you can't reach so easily to your corners and you know, tables and and so on. Well, so I think you've... It seems like in Finland the classrooms are much more um, sparse. They don't have that many things in them. I think you've uh, picked up on something a lot of school administrators and those of us that do consulting would appreciate you picking up on because you know, I go into schools where you, you can barely get to the mechanicals in a room because they're so covered with clutter and stuff. They think it's a, a shelf or something like that, and it's you know right. they don't quite understand the importance of keeping that area clean. Uh, I just did one at a college that I, I couldn't believe they couldn't get to the 
uh, unit ventilator in the room. So the mechanical guys, the maintenance guys, you know, they tried for years to get them to clean up the area, and then they they gave up. And as a result of giving up, the filters didn't get changed, the the coils didn't get cleaned, and the rooms became really uh, problematic. Right, and that is one problem in Finland as well, is the technical rooms and how how people tend to think they are storage spaces, but but also um, in classrooms in this case. And one other thing is that in Finland, uh, the shoes are taken off. Even in schools, uh, many of the teachers make the kids to take their shoes off when they enter the classroom. And the same thing happens in homes. We don't really walk walk with the shoes on, so I don't know if that's something that um, prevents bringing in, in dirt and things. I'm sure it helps. You know, I'm sure that helps a lot, and that's an interesting observation. So they, they and and you're in a cold climate, so you know one of the excuses is that well, then the kids' feet will get cold. But it sounds like they're able to make it work in Finland. Well, they yeah, and they use this special like indoor shoes okay so they have a pair of slippers or something like that they throw on that makes sense that makes a lot of sense well before we go um i want you to kind of look into your magic ball and and if you were able to get the government to fund uh whatever research you wanted what would you ask for well i think we we talked about the associations we have found with uh, ventilation and performance, and also uh, we're looking at some associations with cleanliness and health. And I just think it would be really important to go even more uh, detailed uh, in it and try and establish more sort of causal relationships. And for that, we would need to do intervention type of studies and uh, we have planned those but I uh, always uh, it's a question of funding and uh, that is very important important area in general in schools ventilation cleanliness also thermal conditions uh, dampness and mold issues I think those are the the main or in very important things that um, can affect students' health and performance and, and more research and those is definitely needed. When you say intervention, um, it, it takes me back to when we were talking a little bit about the ventilation studies that you've worked with, uh, I believe, your husband on and others. And we talked about the fact that, you know, above um, uh, additional ventilation, where the diminishing returns uh, occur. So are you saying that maybe you'd like to be able to adjust the ventilation in the rooms as opposed to just measuring and comparing one that's ventilated, you know, at a certain level and another that's ventilated a little bit better? Well, yes, to be able to really sort of, try and prove that there is that connection and also that by improving ventilation you get the, the improvement in, in uh, performance 
as well as by improving cleaning, you get uh, improved health of students. And there's that payback. I think that would be very important to be able to show for the decision makers. And also from the sustainability point of view, because we don't want to be overventilating the schools uh, because that obviously uh, leads to increased energy consumption and green house gas emissions and so on. So it would be very important to know the optimal levels of, of ventilation and uh, indoor temperature and, and so on. What, so that we wouldn't waste any resources, but we would be able to comprehensively assess what is the best investment and, in schools. I'm just curious, as someone that comes from a cold climate, do you think we keep our buildings too warm or, or too cold in the wintertime here in the U.S.? Well, um, I used to think so, and then uh, we we had we did this. We have been collecting data from Finland, and it turns out that in there the buildings are being kept too warm during the winter. Huh. And I think there's a lot of improvement in in both cold climates that may be overheating and then um, hot climates that may be overcooling the indoor spaces because I think uh, with the current understanding we should really try and think about what is necessary and how can we save the energy and become more environmentally conscious about our choices. You know, it's been it's been fascinating talking to you, and I, I just maybe I'll get one more quick one in. Are you are you? Let's see. In, in Finland, do you have more control over the ventilation, say through opening and closing windows, as compared to what you've seen here in the United States? Uh, well, traditionally, for example, classrooms have been ventilated during the breaks. There, they make the kids go outside. Uh, any weather, every after every class or every 45 minutes, they take a 15-minute break and all the kids go outside and they ventilate their rooms by opening windows. But then with the newer schools where they have mechanical ventilation, it becomes a little pro- problematic. And I think the general recommendation is that the windows are kept closed so the ventilation system is taking care of the ventilation that is needed. I'm glad I asked. That's that's fascinating. So after every class, they go outside for 15 minutes. Yes, yes, they do. It probably helps in more ways than one. You know, get a little sun on your face, too, and uh, freshen up a little bit. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, listen, before we go, Dr. Shaughnessy, we always like to ask, is there anything that we missed that you would like to add or any final comments you'd like to make? Well, not really. We talked about that need of um, more funding, so that's always welcome. If, if anyone happens to know any source. You know, I do want to point out to you, and and I know I'm pretty sure Richard's going to check in if he's not already, the IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, is starting a new research-type journal, actually the first, um, the first 
edition will come out in February, and they're really interested in putting more time and effort and money, which is nice, they, they do have some money, into research-type projects. So I want to encourage both of you to keep in touch with us here. I, I just got elected to that board of directors, and I'm, I'm excited about it. We also just opened a, a new building in Las Vegas, and we plan on doing some uh, having some areas for research there and doing a lot more with respect to cleaning uh, research and, and the effects of, you know, how cleaning works and the best ways of doing cleaning. So I look forward to talking to both of you, both of you more about that in the future. Well, that's great. And that's really important. And also, if anyone has any comments or questions to me, I'd be welcome to contact me by email. Or Okay. And what is your email? Um, well, it's my name, first name, last name, at thl.fi. At T-S-L? P-H-L. Oh, P-H-L. Great. I will, um, I will make sure we have that as well, and anybody that wants to get in touch, we'll let them get them your information. And, and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have um, someone from both overseas and a female perspective because we you know like you were saying only about 20 percent in the uh, even in finland uh, are involved in the building science area and we really appreciate you coming on and i know english is a second language but i think you did tremendous and and did a wonderful job and we appreciate you joining us thank you and thanks for this opportunity it was really interesting to meet you our pleasure i look forward to meeting in person all right <laughs> This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to today's guest, Dr. Ula Havarinen Shaughnessy. I think I got it right. She was she did a great job and much appreciated. I also want to thank Jessica Lawson at the controls. Good job, Jess. No, no glitches at all today. Of course, next week, my co-host and partner, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, will be back. We've got Millie Washington coming in with the couple of folks working on a new standard available through the IICRC. Look forward to that. And most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. 